I think going online as a young cook, when you are still unformed in many ways, I think it's nice to see photographs of what other people are doing. But you start seeing too many 20-course menus from Scandinavia or Spain or Japan over and over and over again. To me, it's a lot of kind of polluting and getting in the way, and it clouds your own ability to, to create your own style, which is an evolutionary step. Cooks imitate, then they assimilate, and then they innovate. And that's a natural progression that has to happen. And sometimes being exposed to all that data and all that information, it just gets in the way. It's a pretty old fogey thing to say, isn't it? Heritage Radio Network proudly presents Evolutionaries, David Kinch. David Kinch is a chef ahead of our time. Long before the farm-to-table trend, David found inspiration in the seasons, the land, the ingredients at hand. Coming into his own under the tutelage of great chefs from New Orleans to New York, France to Japan, and finally settling down in California, David's culinary prowess and vision has earned him multiple James Beard Awards. In 2016, Manresa, his first restaurant, received three, yes, three stars from the Michelin Guide. His second restaurant, Bywater, also located in the Silicon Valley, opened its doors in 2016. David was born outside of Philadelphia, but moved a lot throughout his childhood due to his dad's work in the oil industry. They settled in New Orleans for a while, and here is where the story of David Kinch, award-winning and innovative chef, begins. The kitchen of the legendary Commander's Palace as a prep cook. Back then... And I don't mean this badly, but, you know, the rep in New Orleans was, you know, as good as it was and as a great time as it was to go out and eat. It was a, it was a town of 5,000 restaurants and five recipes. And, you know, I didn't want to make gumbo for the rest of my life. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to see the world. You know, one of the reasons why I went into cooking back then was I thought it would afford me the opportunity to travel and see the world. David left New Orleans to attend culinary school at Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island. I committed to going to culinary school right out of high school. And culinary schools were very different then than they are now. Back then, you know, it was a lot of second career, a lot of people ex-military. I think a fair amount of ex-cons were in there too. You know, it was just different. You know, it wasn't a glamorous profession like like it is nowadays. I mean, it's it was people who were learning a skill so they could work and make a living is what it was, as opposed to people, I don't know, who have, are fast-tracking themselves to fame and glory. They want exposure, and not just cooking, and, and that's a pity. After graduating in 1981, David moved to New York City, where he found the beginnings of his culinary career at the Hotel Parker Meridian, as well as some interesting places to live. Where did I live in New York? I had a really shitty apartment on 14th Street between 1st and 2nd. It was amazing. There was a fire. There was a hallway fire. I mean, there was a lot going on in that building. That was pretty awesome. I look back on it now, and I can't. I mean, I walk by it on occasion. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh my! Uh, and then I ended up my my last couple years is I had a place on Avenue A, Avenue A and Second Street. That was that was a that was a pretty ballsy corner too back then. No oh. baby gaps back then. No baby. <laughs> a pivotal point of David Kinch's career was his time spent at New York's legendary Quilted Giraffe, which was run by Barry Wine from 1979 until it closed its doors in 1993. 
we all got along. But Barry had a reunion about 10 years after the restaurant closed, and that was great fun seeing it. everybody showed up. It was, it was pretty amazing. You know, there's a lot of people who came and went through that kitchen, and some appreciated it and some didn't, but it affected all of us. And, uh, you know, that's, you can't ask for more. During the 14 years it was open for service, the Quilted Giraffe earned a reputation for uncompromised quality in fine dining, attracting such regulars as Jackie O, Woody Allen, and Warren Beatty. Its kitchen churned out more than good food. Culinary talents Peter Hoffman, Tom Colicchio, and Katie Sparks all spent time there. Before joining their ranks, David went to France to work at a classic bistro called La Petite Ferme. And the sole reason I went to work at this bistro was because the owner's brother had a one-star Michelin place in the heart of Burgundy. And I went from, you know, this really grand French restaurant to work in this bistro with like two other people in the kitchen. And for the soul, the deal was I'll work for you a year, but you gotta send me to your brother's place. Because uh, that was my goal. And that's what I did. You know, I spent most of 1984 um, in France. So it was my first experience working over there. And when I came back from that year abroad, uh, the end of 84, uh, I was looking for work. I was walking by the Quilted Giraffe, and the Quilted was not on my list of places, but I was taking a break for lunch, and I had, was down to my last copy, and I thought, what the hell? And I knocked on the door, and nobody was there except for one guy who was vacuuming the carpet. It was actually Barry, Barry Wine, who was the owner of the place at the time. And he came in, and he took my resume, and he said, that's so funny. You know, we just had someone, you know, who wants to come in and trail tonight. And I did, and at that time, I saw the most amazing food I've ever seen in my life, and that was including the time that I had spent in France. Uh, what was going on there looked like it was from another world. Uh, it was fresh and light and colorful and vegetable-centric. I still think it was a restaurant that was way ahead of its time. The Quilts Giraffe was not afraid to go up against the best that the world had to offer. It was super luxurious. It was unapologetically luxurious. Uh, the amount of money we spent on ingredients and, and new techniques. Uh, it was a very collaborative kitchen. Everybody worked together to create new dishes. And Barry, you know, who was kind of like made fun of around town because he was self-taught, you know, and, and you know, to me, that was his greatest asset is was he was not formally trained. He would question things that people never questioned before because things were dogmatic and they were done a certain way. And I really liked this atmosphere, you know, because I was formally trained. I was saying, there's one way to do something, and that's it. And Barry would be like, well, why don't we try it this way? During his time at the Quilted Giraffe, David continued honing his skills as a cook while also shaping his culinary identity. Pretty intense, you know, focused. Uh, I took great pride in, in, in a job well done. Um, I like to move around different stations. I constantly like to be learning. I gravitated towards certain things. Fish butchery I liked much more than meat butchery, that sort of thing. Uh, working with vegetables, obviously I think that came from the quilted, you know, which was so vegetable-centric at that time. Uh, I had an appreciation for it at, at a, a fairly young age, which, you know, that's many people do nowadays too, but it was a pretty rare occurrence to be exposed to that back then. Yeah, I love to work. I love to go. I love to cook. I, I, you know, I, I loved going to, to work every day. I still do. 
For David, solidifying his culinary style meant more travel. He visited his parents in California and then left for Japan. I left because uh, I was getting a little bit tired of New York. My parents had just moved to California. I had just visited California. I visited in February. And I got off the plane and I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, there's two feet of snow, you know, and I was like, really? It's 72 degrees here. I went out. I was kind of uh, a wine nut, and I went and visited Mount Eden, you know, which I was a big fan of. And, uh, you know, the seed was kind of planted about how nice California was. And the quilted at that time had taken on a real Japanese inflection. Barry, I guess, like in 1985 or 86, he went on vacation and he was a changed man. They came back with plates and ideas, and the restaurant kind of just make this hard right turn. And I bought into it. I, you know, I really bought into these tenets of Japanese food. We were learning everything that we possibly could in a very naive way, but it was really, really fascinating. I became enamored with all things Japanese, at least in the kitchen, and I decided that I wanted to go work in Japan. After spending six months in Japan, David returned to San Francisco at a position running the kitchen in Silk's restaurant in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. I was there for about a year and a half. It was busy, and then the earthquake hit, and then it was not. Business kind of dried up. A couple of major highways came down. You know, I felt like at 28 that I was kind of at a crossroads. You come to that time in your life where you can make the turn for the money or you can make that turn where you hold back a little bit and you continue to learn and continue to be exposed. And I felt stagnant. I felt stagnant cooking-wise. And I needed to be kicked in the butt. I needed to be kicked, and I needed to continue to learn. So, you know, I got rid of everything, sold the car, got rid of the apartment, quit my job, and I did a... You know, backpack trip. I went around the world, uh, took no airplanes except for the oceans, visited about 28 countries. I was in some really great and wonderful places. Uh, I was in a, a lot of places that, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to visit now. And I staged for almost two years in Europe again. And there I was, you know, almost, yeah, I was 30 years old at this point. And, you know, I was in kitchens with 19- and 20-year-olds. I worked in France. I worked in Spain. I worked in Germany. I worked uh, another harvest in, in Sancerre. It was great help. It was a great benefactor. It was kind of like a finishing school almost. And when I came back, uh, I was I was reinvigorated. I knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. I took a job for a couple of years in San Francisco at a place called Ernie's, kind of reestablished myself. And then I started looking for opening my own place. I decided I wanted to, to open up a restaurant, and I raised a little bit of money, had some people commit some money, not a lot, and um, I spent a lot of time looking in uh, San Francisco. I looked at, I don't know, I may have looked at 80 different properties, North Bay, East Bay, in San Francisco proper, and there was never anything I really, I either I couldn't afford it or I didn't like the space, and um, I remember seeing something 
in a newspaper. And my first job in California after I left New York was at a winery uh, called Mount Eden Vineyards. And it was actually in Saratoga. And they were really the only people I knew. So when I had time off, I would drive down to Saratoga, drive up to the top of the mountain and, and, and hang with my friends. And I remember on one of those trips actually seeing a place for rent, and I kind of just balled it up and tossed into the garbage. I would open up a restaurant in the South Bay. And a period of time, I went through the garbage. I went out to, like, our dumpster, and I went through it to find that ad. You know, it's 1995. You're not going to find it online. It's going to be in print. And I found the crumbled up newspaper for the ad, and I went down. On another visit, I went down and made an appointment to go ch- check the space. And uh, as soon as I walked in, I walked in the door, and I was like, oh, you know, it, it sang. You know, you, you knew. You knew right away. And I'm a big believer in, in, in things uh, making sense out of the blue like that. And um, that's where it started. And we could afford it. It was really cheap. It was really cheap. And it was in, you know, the South Bay. It was definitely off the beaten path. Um, it was nice because it was around Silicon Valley. So there was there was people who would support the restaurants. But, uh, you know, South Bay was, you know, a, you know, the butt of jokes, you know, in terms of, you know, the Bay Area, in terms of food. There was nothing down there. There was nothing down there at the time. David opened Cent Sovi in San Francisco's South Bay in 1995 and left it in 2001. The following year, he opened what would become his defining restaurant, Manresa. In addition to earning three Michelin stars, Manresa has been named one of the world's 50 best restaurants. The best restaurants in the world, they all have one person who has a vision. It's not corporate. It's not by committee. It's not thematic. There's one person. It doesn't necessarily have to be the chef. You know, It can be the guys in the front of the house, the owner. There's got to be someone who has a passion and has a vision, and he has a team in place carrying it out. A lot of times it is the chef, but sometimes it's not. And the other thing is that that particular restaurant has a sense of place. It's a reflection of where it is. There are a lot of great restaurants, a lot of famous restaurants around the world, here in the United States, in New York, and around the world. But you could pick them up. And you could drop them down in Tokyo, Barcelona, New York, London, Rio de Janeiro, and it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. They be are what they are. And they can be very good restaurants, but to me, that is not the next level. For me, all restaurants have to have a certain sense of place. They couldn't be anywhere else. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to create a restaurant that had a unique identity and was a reflection of where I was. And I was going to be patient about it. You know, I didn't have a lot of money. I was going to start. I was going to start shoestring, and do it the old-fashioned way. It's like if I made a little bit of money, I'd plow it back into the restaurant. And that's that's Manresa's story. You know, do I have partners? Yes. I mean, it was a real estate deal. You know, we. But that's essentially what it was. It was a real estate deal that happened to have a restaurant on it. But everything from Sensovi, which you know, you know the rent at Sensovi was eleven hundred and is like sixteen hundred dollars a month. You know, it was cheaper than the apartment I had at that time. And it was, you know, it was it was a shithole. You know, it's... And we built it up, and then we relocated the restaurant. And Manrace has been through two renovations and a fire now. And it's it's been improved each time. And um, we're not finished doing that, too. We try to view it as a dynamic thing. But always, every decision we make is always... Is it not only a reflection of who we are, but where we are as well. Mm-hmm. 
I've been asked all the time how come you know I didn't have another restaurant that sort of thing and you know I liked working at Manresa maybe you know maybe I wasn't smart enough to do it he did end up finding success in new places launching Manresa Bread with baker Avery Rusica in 2013 and opening his second restaurant Bywater in 2016 but I'm a big believer in things growing organically and naturally and the bakery and the bywater both happened because of that. You know, I had, you know, I had took on a new partner. Um, you know, Avery w- was very passionate, smart, and uh, uh, individual. And she deserved a challenge. You know, all I did was create an opportunity for, for her to, for her and I to collaborate on it. Um, it's just having the right people at the right time is the way I view it. Um, the Bywater established itself because, you know, the space became available. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't do focus group, you know, a New Orleans restaurant. It was, it was something, you know, that felt perfectly natural to do. You know, I want to do a, a casual place, uh, not on that grand of a scale, uh, with absolutely no pretense whatsoever. And in thinking about what I wanted to do, I constantly returned over and over again to New Orleans and uh, how important my time there was to me and still is and uh, so that was easy easy growth not bragging but uh, you know I can go into a restaurant and I can look at the menu and so I simply looking at the menu, I'll tell you how old the chef is, what cookbooks are on his shelf, where he's staged, and um, what food he likes to eat. It's like it all comes together. You know, after 35 years of seeing things, I see the lineage of ambitious chefs. And uh, I think that's great. You know, but it's like, it's funny. You see a dish and you smile because, you know, they read this book. Or they had a, a great meal at this place, and it had, it had a great influence on them. And that's part of the assimilation, you know. We talk about imitate, assimilate, innovate. And say cooks, when they're starting out, they imitate. They copy their mentors, their heroes. Pay tribute to them, but, you know, they're, they're trying to do something that they feel is really superb. And then the next step is when they start to get a little bit more confident is they start to assimilate. They start to maybe branch out a little bit tentatively, put their own ideas forward and everything like that. But you can still see where those ideas come from. They're building upon what they had previously been imitating. And, of course, the last step is innovate is where um, they have reached a certain level of maturity, both probably as a person and as a cook, where they're confident, hopefully quietly confident and putting forth their own style. And it's unique and it's original, and people will view it as such. David's culinary trajectory has taught him invaluable lessons, both in and out of the kitchen. Well, um, you know, it's, you get older. You know, it's a, it's a relentless profession. You know, it, it takes its physical toll. I have become a big believer, and there's many factors. Um, one of them being the restaurant burning, you know, burning down, is, is understanding things that are really, really important. Uh, health is one of them, but the romance of our industry profession is, is that 
you're always working, you know, you're great cooks, they go into the kitchen and they're so passionate and they never stop working and it's on and on and it's almost like a buzzsaw. Now that I have tried to achieve more balance in my life, I find myself more creative and that might just be a product of being older and, you know, needing more rest and, and, and taking better care of myself, but you use your time more efficiently, therefore more wisely. And that's one of the last things people learn. <laughs> this piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee for Heritage Radio Network with additional production by Holly Cedarholm. The songs featured in order of appearance are Deep for the 99 and 2000, Snowman, and Put It On, All by Vesa, Gone Away by Keto, Space Disco, Bounce and Wake by Jack Inslee, VHS New and Deep again by Vesa.